I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Mersham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H, Y Kellerman, Saadade 13, Kathleen, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Enoch, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we revisit the sordid sagas of Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell with Nick Bryant, the reporter who published Epstein's Little Black Book, which contained names and addresses of numerous Epstein associates, such as Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, Prince Andrew, and Bill Cosby, among others. As you'll learn in the conversation to follow, Nick has a broader interest than just the Epstein case. He researches and reports on a phenomena that he is called sexual political blackmail. We'll be talking about that in this conversation and much, much more with the newly unsealed documents about the Epstein case being released. This feels like a rather timely conversation. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Nick Bryant. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I've been meaning to have on for some time. Uh, In the past, we've covered the Jeffrey Epstein case on this show, Parallax Views, and it's been a while since we've covered it, and I wanted to revisit it in light of recent events. And the guest we have on to do that is Nick Bryant, uh, a reporter and author of the book The Franklin Scandal, and the man who helped publish Epstein's Black Book on the net. How are you doing, Nick? Good. How about yourself? I'm doing very good. I'm doing very good. I want to get into the latest developments 
with the Epstein case, but maybe just for the sake of my listeners, you can give a little bit of your background and how you came to investigate the Epstein network. I was uh, looking into some subject matter 21 years ago, and that was relatively dark. And I came across a, and it, it was on the internet, it was all over the internet. It was a ostensibly a, or yeah, I'd, I'd go with ostensibly at that point. Um, it was about a trafficking network that was affiliated with the CIA that trafficked kids from coast to coast and pandered them to rich and powerful people. When I initially looked at that case, it was, it seemed fantastic, but I decided to check it out. And the epicenter of that network was Omaha, Nebraska. So I went to Omaha and I kind of felt that something had happened in Omaha, but I didn't think I was going to run into what I ran into. And what I ran into was that was a huge interstate child trafficking network that had been covered up by the FBI and Department of Justice that had, in fact, flown kids from coast to coast and used them to blackmail politicians, that there was a house in Washington, D.C. that was wired for audiovisual blackmail. And I worked on that story for seven years. I really thought that the bar was going to be high on that story because there really hadn't been a story like that. And there were accounts on the Internet, but a lot of them were wrong and some of them were a bridge too far. And some of them, obviously, um, perhaps there was some psychiatric instability. So I spent seven years on it. And I really worked very hard at nailing down the various facets of it. And ultimately, the book, The Franklin Scandal, A Story of Power Brokers, Child Abuse and Betrayal, was published in 2009-2010. And then shortly thereafter, well, I... Real quick, if I, if I could, I just wanted sure. to ask you this personally, because I, I thought your book, The Franklin Scandal, I actually thought it was more compelling than... Uh, the other book on the subject, the Franklin cover-up. I'm a little bit more, I'm not as trusting of of John DeCamp or someone like Ted Gunderson. I felt like they maybe had a political agenda, but then I read your book and I felt there was uh, something more compelling about it. What convinced you of the reality uh, of child abuse in the Franklin case? Because I, like I said, I think your book really compelled me to rethink it in some ways. Well, the reason I wrote that book is I felt that it needed a a, a real journalistic scaffolding. Um, and I thought that the DeCamp book was lacking in that. So I decided to write the Franklin scandal. And the thing about John DeCamp and Ted Gunderson, I was very skeptical of Ted Gunderson. And... John DeCamp did help me initially uh, with with documents, and I I really appreciated that. What ultimately got me hooked into the story is I couldn't believe that the government, our government, had covered up such a huge child trafficking network. I, I was stunned by that. I, I'd written a lot on children's issues, 
You can go to my LinkedIn page and see that I've written a lot about children's issues and also a book about lower socioeconomic and children. So I'm, I'm not coming at this as a conspiracy guy. I'm coming at this as someone who's actually cares about children and, and, and their welfare. And once I came across this, I couldn't let it go. I, I had to I had to do something about it. And so that book was published in 2009, 2010. And then I started reading about Epstein. And the one thing that delineates a network like the Franklin scandal or like Epstein's or like other people have come to me and they've showed me various other networks. The one thing a telltale sign of a network is major legal aberrations. And with the Franklin scandal, you, you had major legal aberrations. Uh, you had uh, two very corrupt grand juries. And I don't know if your viewers are familiar with a grand jury, but the, the term grand jury is like the gods of jurisprudence have spoken. But with grand juries, a special prosecutor is chosen, and he's the one that shows the grand jurors evidence and calls witnesses. Now, the grand jurors are just regular citizens that have shown up for jury duty that have been funneled to a grand jury. And they're completely dependent on the special prosecutor to call witnesses and give them evidence. And a New York Supreme Court judge once quipped quite famous, famously that special prosecutors of grand juries have so much power over grand jurors that they could get them to indict a ham sandwich. So in the Franklin scandal, there were actually three grand juries that were hijacked. There were two in Nebraska, a state and a federal, and then there was one in Washington, D.C. With the Epstein case, when I started to look into that, it was very obvious to me that he'd molested a number of girls, but yet the grand jury, the, the Florida state grand jury under Barry Kirshner, he was the uh, special prosecutor, hadn't indicted Epstein on one count of child abuse, not one count. So again, there was, <clears throat> I felt a, a major legal aberration there. And in 2012, I went down to Florida and I started to investigate Jeffrey Epstein. And that's when I came across his black book. And I started calling victims and the, the, the black book has the numbers of like about 150 victims. And I started calling the victims and they told me about being flown around. And they also told me about his island. And at that point, I realized that I was dealing with a, an, a, another very large traffic child trafficking network. And I think you've said before that you, you had the inclination that this was intelligence connected. Can you get more into that? I do believe that it was intelligence connected. Alexander Acosta was a U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida, which was ostensibly going to oversee Jeffrey Epstein's case. And he had a list of more than 30 Epstein victims, underage Epstein victims. And he was told down, he was told to stand down from prosecuting Epstein or anyone affiliated with Epstein. And when he was, he ultimately became the labor secretary for uh, Donald Trump. And he was asked, 
why he stood down from prosecuting Epstein. And he said, I was told Epstein was intelligence and to leave it alone, it was above my pay grade. And he has never denied saying that. So we have a very good source, a former U.S. attorney, telling us that uh, Epstein was intelligence. But here's the thing that really indicates to me that he's intelligence. A U.S. attorney was told to stand down from prosecuting a, a child, a serial child molester. Now, there's only two people in the government that can tell a U.S. attorney to stand down. One is the president and one is the attorney general. I mean, that message can be delivered by the minions of the president or the attorney general, but that that uh, that has to emanate from the attorney general or the president. And that's another indicator that it's intelligence. So then how do these networks work and what what is their sort of modus operandi? I guess this gets into the blackmail element. With the Franklin scandal, uh, Lawrence E. King, one of the pimps in that network, he was getting a lot of kids from Boys Town, the distinguished Catholic orphanage on the outskirts of Omaha. But he would get other kids. And Epstein created a machine where he had a number of recruiters or procurers and these young girls were given $200 if they brought someone new to Epstein's uh, place. And it was it was like a, a spider web that was just spread over uh, Southern Florida in the or the Miami area. And that's how these predators get children. They get them. They predators like Epstein or Lawrence E. King get children from every conceivable way that they can get children. Um, and they've got a lot of clients or child molesters that they're providing these kids to. So they have like an insatiable appetite for children. And they will get them any possible way that they can. And with Epstein, he had a machine. It was overseen by Ghislaine Maxwell and Sarah Kellen and Nadia Marcinkova and Leslie Groff, but that was a machine that would just suck these girls in. And as with Epstein and also the Franklin scandal, most of these kids were from dysfunctional backgrounds, very damaged. And, and that's why they agreed to uh, become child prostitutes, or I don't even know, I don't even know I have the word for it, but that's why they ultimately were that's ultimately why Epstein was able to take advantage of them. Right. It's it's a very far cry from this whole Alan Dershowitz line of, oh, Virginia made her her own choices, which is just I mean, it's ridiculous given that she was 15. At the time. Yes, I think she was 16 or 17. But yeah, you're okay. right. If you could, you have this issue, I think, with the way the mainstream media has covered it, um, where the mainstream media will cover the salacious sort of. um tidbits and, and new details, but they're not covering justice for the victims. Could you speak to that? I mean, the, the mainstream media has been great about kicking out salacious dirt, but not one 
media that I'm aware of has called for justice for all these kids. I mean, Epstein trafficked children for 25 years. Think of all the girls that were molested by him. And and Epstein and Maxwell were vicious. They, they were vicious. And that's another thing that's missing from the mainstream media. The mainstream media really hasn't delineated just how vicious they were. And it's interesting, there was that release of documents last week, and CNN actually called me. And because very seldom do like mainstream outlets call me. <laughs> it's happened, but uh, they always cancel before airtime. But anyway, CNN called me and I said, yeah, they said, we'd sell you as the guy that put up the black book, Jeffrey Epstein's black book, which I was. I was the guy that put Jeffrey Epstein's black book uh, on the internet in 2015. And this producer and I had a number of email exchanges and I said, I'd really like to talk about Epstein Justice, which is an organization I've started that is looking for justice for the Epstein victims. Actually, we, we, we have two uh, primary objectives. One, is to make the perpetrators accountable, and two is to make the government accountable. Why is our government covering up child abuse, which is aiding and abetting child trafficking? So I texted the producer and I told him I'd really like to talk about Epstein justice when I'm on that show. And they and then he texted me shortly thereafter and said, well, we've decided to go another direction. So... And that, that's happened to me with another network also, um, actually a couple other networks. I don't know uh, if they decide, well, we can't have this guy on or I, I, I just don't know why, why it got canceled. Um, I think it might have something to do with I wasn't they saw that I wasn't really down with the salacious dirt, that I was more down with justice. I was also going to ask you about I think you've also taken issue with the way the media has portrayed Epstein and his victims. So I, I think what people usually hear is that, you know, the youngest girls were like 14 or 15. Uh, but based on your research, I, they're much younger in, in some cases. Yes. And, and that's a problem. Okay. The Epstein Victims Compensation Fund, I'll get into that, um, was set up to give Epstein victims uh, money. And 225 women have ap applied for it, and it's granted 150 uh, settlements. And I know two therapists that have had clients, and one of them is a very esteemed therapist, who have had clients 10 years or younger that were molested by Epstein et al., and they and and one of them knew a, a lot about Epstein's house, the interior of his house, and 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 the neighborhood. And both of them were denied settlements from the compensation fund. And the therapists think that the reason why they were denied is because they were under the cover story. The cover story on Jeffrey Epstein is that the victims were not younger than fourteen. Although I believe that one uh, victim who was 13 
abused when she was 13, got a settlement from the compensation fund. But yes, that's, and we don't really know the criteria of that compensation fund. It's, it's all done in some behind some kind of opaque cloak. And why do some victims get like uh, a near seven figure settlement and some victims get a low six figure settlement or even five figure settlement? We there's there's no criteria about that. David Boys uh, was who represents a number of the victims. He was one of the architects of that compensation fund. And what's really troubling about that compensation fund is if a woman makes a settlement with that compensation fund, she cannot sue any of her other perpetrators. So that compensation fund is serving the function of a cover-up. It's it's doing something that the government can't, and that's gagging uh, these girls, or now women, that were molested by multiple perpetrators. If you're speaking with someone, or we have a listener, let's say, that's listening, that is not familiar with the sort of um, labyrinth of this case, you know, it's it's sort of like a maze for a lot of people. What do you think the key to understanding uh, the Epstein case is ultimately, if you were to have to really boil it down for people that are, you know, just trying to parse through all the information, maybe having trouble parsing through it? I mean, I, I can explain the Epstein case very simply. The Epstein case was a large child trafficking network that trafficked children for up to 25 years. And it was protected by federal and state law enforcement because it was hooked up to intelligence. And Epstein had cameras in all of his homes. And I believe that a number of people of wealth and power were compromised, that it was Epstein was essentially a honey trap for intelligence. That is Epstein in a nutshell. So with regards to the work you're doing with Epstein Justice, do you want to speak a little bit more to that? Sure. Epstein Justice, your uh, listeners or viewers can go to epsteinjustice.com. And we want two things. As I said, we want accountability for the perpetrators. There's a lot of perpetrators that were molesting these girls that have just walked free. We want accountability for the perpetrators, and we want to know why the government is covering up child trafficking, which is aiding and abetting child trafficking. And we want a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that's, that is going to be adamant that we get accountability for the perps and that the government gives us accountability. Why is the government covering up an aiding and abetting a child trafficking network? Our government shouldn't be in the business of aiding and abetting child trafficking networks. It, it's actually kind of incomprehensible. Would you trust an individual or entity that's aiding and abetting child trafficking? You, you never would. I mean, so how can we trust our government at this point that is aiding and abetting child trafficking? I also wanted to ask you if you have time. Uh, so you co-wrote a book with uh, Henry W. Vinson uh, entitled Confessions of a D.C. Madame. I did. Uh, so, so you've written uh, about the Franklin story, uh, the DC Madame, and uh, and Epstein. 
And I've also heard you on on True and On and whatnot talk about Black Cube, uh, the Weinstein case. Uh, you, you've covered a lot of cases involving sexual abuse, uh, especially involving powerful people. How do these different cases all um, not? I don't want to say come together, but wh where are the overlaps? What what are the similarities in all of these cases? Money and power. In the cases that I've written about, it really comes down to money and power. There is a dark, malignant corner of our intelligence, and some people would call it the CIA. I, I just call it a dark, malignant corner that wants power. And the way that it acquires power is through blackmail. Last month, there was a U.S. representative who from, from Tennessee who came out and said that a number of his colleagues are blackmailed. And it was great because I've been writing about that. And actually, I've got a third book that's coming out about uh, sexual political blackmail. So it was nice to finally have a U.S. representative corroborate what I've been saying for the last 21 years. I also wanted to ask you, when you have people uh, that have listened to your interviews or maybe attended rallies or spoken with you, I, I think there are people that respond to this, even with Epstein, which I think we know so much about now, where people will say, I just, I can't believe this, or it's, it's too much. As you said, maybe when you first came to the Franklin case, it was uh, almost like a hard pill uh, to swallow. And I know you've spoken to um, Sarah Kenzier, uh, the author of They Knew. And I, I think Sarah's doing really good work because she's making us think about, you know, institutional corruption and trying to get us away from the the sort of sensationalistic nonsense and also the nonsense saying, oh, conspiracies don't happen. But when you come across people that just can't fathom the possibility that sexual political blackmail is a thing, what do you say to those people? Um, how do you maybe uh, talk them into uh, understanding that this is a real phenomenon? Sexual political blackmail is as old as the United States itself. That's very true. And I'll give you a couple of examples of it. Alexander Hamilton was having an affair with a 23-year-old woman who was married. And her husband was blackmailing him, and he was paying her husband money. And then there was a muckraking journalist that got wind of this story and outed Alexander Hamilton in the press as someone who was having an affair with this 23-year-old. And this muckraker, uh, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton really disliked each other. So this muckraker went to... Thomas Jefferson and and said, I, you know, I've outed Alexander Hamilton. You should give me an appointment in your administration. And Jefferson didn't give him an appointment in his administration. And he, he subsequently outed Jefferson for having sex with his slaves, or at least one slave, Sally Hemings. And I'll, I'll give you some, I'll give you a, a current, uh, a relatively recent Great example of uh, how easy it is to compromise politicians. Um, there was a hardcore conservative named Larry Craig from Ohio, Idaho, 
And I wrote a book called Confessions of a DC Madam, as you noted, and it was about a Henry Vincent who ran a gay escort service in Washington, DC. And intelligence would use his escorts to compromise people, but he provided escorts to Larry Craig. And there were other, uh, and Larry Craig was getting escorts from uh, other other uh, streams. So Larry Craig is a guy that was in Washington, D.C. for 25 years, first as a U.S. representative and then as a senator. And he's getting escorts, multiple escorts from multiple sources. And he was in the bathroom of the Minneapolis International Airport. And there was a vice squad, a vice cop that was slapping his foot against the ground, which I guess is nomenclature for, um, you know, pickups. And Craig bit on this and he got busted for, I don't know, lewd something or another in a public bathroom. So how that guy was in Washington, D.C. for 25 years and he's trying to pick up a vice cop in a bathroom in Minneapolis. How hard would that guy be to compromise? Let's say you needed a bill that needed to go through, if, like an expenditure. You wanted, if you, if you were a defense contractor and you wanted to make sure that uh, your company, that the, that the U.S. bought a number of tanks, planes, helicopters from you, that guy would be the perfect guy to be compromised. I was going to say real quick, because that name, Larry Craig rings a bell, was that that was covered in in the Kirby Dick movie, Outrage, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. OK, OK. That's a very good movie for people that haven't. Yeah, uh, that's, that a, that's a really with. good movie. And it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I'm from Minneapolis. And I've been to that airport a number of times because I go home or I go back to Minneapolis fairly often. And I was sitting on the commode in one of those bathrooms, and there was a guy that was slapping his foot against uh, against the floor. And I had no idea what that meant. I thought that he was suffering from some kind of a neurological disorder. <laughs> so I just had a, a few more brief questions. If you have a little bit of extra time, I wanted to ask sure. you. With regards to these latest unsealed documents, what's your thoughts on what is in these unsealed documents? Is there anything new? Is there anything we can glean? Or is the media making more out of it than it needs to? Is it only interested in the salacious details, as you put it, prior? Or or is there something we can get out of these documents? These documents are much ado. Actually, you can go to my Twitter feed, and I've posted all of them. If you if you want to take a look at them, there's a there was a um a deposition of um, Johanna Shogren. And she says a couple of interesting things. She's talking to the magician, David Copperfield, who's been implicated in all of this. And he essentially tells her he knows how Epstein gets all these girls. And then she's later on in the deposition, she was talking to Epstein and Epstein said about Clinton that he likes them young. Now we know that Epstein was bringing girls into the White House or adults into the White House for, for Bill Clinton. But uh, that that was kind of a new revelation. But other than that, it was much ado. There wasn't anything revelatory 
um, in, in, in any of those documents. It was just, uh, and there wasn't even really any salacious dirt. I mean, it was, they were, they were pretty bland, which is probably why they were released. In regards to the victims, I think people will know certain names, right? They'll know uh, Virginia Jeffrey. They'll know uh, Maria Farmer. Uh, they'll know those names. But what do you think people have to understand about the victims? And it's not just limited to those two. There, there's others. Um, and I, I think sometimes people get so caught up in the intrigues of a Jeffrey Epstein or uh, Jelaine Maxwell that they they almost put the victims to the side. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the victims and maybe uh, your experience talking to people uh, that are victims. Because I, I know you've been one of the few people that have actually interviewed people involved in the uh, victims of the Franklin scandal, uh, like Alicia Owen. And I haven't seen anyone else speak to them. So it's uh, it's something that I think is invaluable to talk about the victims themselves. Well, people who traffic children are sociopaths. And they know all the mind games to play with these kids. And as I said earlier, uh, Epstein and Maxwell are vicious. They're in the business of trafficking children. And they're sociopaths or psychopaths, depending upon your definition. So they're not going to be nice to these girls. I mean, they'll be nice to these girls maybe to suck them in. But after they're sucked in, they're, they're caught in, in the web. I mean... And they've got to be subjected to the viciousness of uh, Maxwell and Epstein and Kellen and a bunch of the others. And then I know of at least one case where, and I, I know of a number of cases in the Franklin scandal, but at least one case in the Epstein scandal where the perps liked to beat up the kids. I mean, that's how they got off was beating up kids. So, those uh, victims had to go that were pandered to those perps had to go through that too of, of being physically and violently abused. And these are scars that are going to last those people forever, forever. There, there's nothing that they're going to be able to do that's going to be able to make them forget the abuse that they've been through. And, and that's what the media doesn't understand, is that Epstein and Maxwell were vicious, and they have scarred these women for life. And it appalls me that salacious dirt is the media's primary focus with Epstein instead of really getting justice for these poor women that are going to be scarred for the rest of their lives because of their interactions with Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. Do you think there's also an issue where I've known people that are only interested in the Epstein case from an angle that they think behooves them politically. So there are people I know that are only interested in Epstein because uh, the Trump connection or are only interested because of the Clinton connection. And I feel like in doing that, it's doing a disservice to the victims. It's more than just about your own, you know, scoring partisan political points. Indeed. And actually, we've seen that with Marsha Blackburn 
um, the senator that is asking to uh, subpoena the Epstein passenger manifests. What brought about that is some Democratic senators are looking into Clarence Thomas, who is really a nasty piece of work. You can go onto my website, nickbrynyc.com, and I wrote an article about Clarence Thomas, and he is a nasty piece of work. So then Marsha Blackburn, as, as in a quid, quid pro quo, is, is attempting to subpoena these Epstein uh, passenger manifests, and she got shut down by the Democrats, which really is the whole thing is egregious because those de Democrats and the Republicans should be working together and saying, what what happened to all these kids? I mean, let, let, we need to help these kids instead of making it into a, a partisan political issue. It's really uh, it, it's a major tragedy. I just had two more brief questions. I know I've kept you a few minutes over, but um, there were two figures I'm really interested in, in hearing your thoughts on. And the first is, and I, I believe you've actually spoken to her, is uh, Sarah Kellen. So one of these procurers. Uh, who was Sarah Kellen and you know what was your gauge on her? Well, Sarah Kellen was one of the procurers. She had been a victim of Epstein's as a minor. But I think Epstein realized, wow, you know, she's pretty smart and ruthless, so I can get her to be part of the machine that sucks in children. And when I talked to her, she was her primary concern was how she was being mistreated in the media. She, was, she had a martyr complex. She definitely had a martyr complex. And that was all I got out of her was how the media was mistreating her. She, I, you know, they're ethical eunuchs. They're all ethical eunuchs. Epstein, Maxwell, Kellen, these perpetrators, they're all ethical eunuchs. And the last person I wanted to ask you about, so I, I have to preface this with, I'm from um, uh, Pittsburgh originally, so Pennsylvania. Uh, so I was following the Ohio connection to this because Ohio isn't that far from Pennsylvania. And uh, one character that kept coming up was uh, Les Wexner of Victoria's Secrets. How much does Wexner figure into the sordid saga of Jeffrey Epstein? I've interviewed uh, Bob Petrakis about this before, uh, but I was wondering your take on the Wexner connection. The thing with the Wexner connection is in 1987, Wexner is a billionaire, multi-billionaire. And in 1987, he gave Jeffrey Epstein power of attorney over his vast wealth, which meant that Epstein could do anything he wanted with Wexner's billions. Wexner essentially gave him the keys to his kingdom. And why would someone do that? The, he hadn't known Epstein that long. It was either, I, I got to find this article because it's, it was, it's either Vanity Fair or it's the New York Times um, that said the reason why Wexner gave, uh, the reason why Wexner gave Epstein the keys to his kingdom was because Wexner was lonely. It actually said that. I, it's either the New York Times or Vanity Fair. I think it's probably the New York Times. But that's 
how this thing has been treated. I mean, for someone that's got an IQ above 90 to say something like that really does show how skewed the reporting on this story has been. I also wanted to get one last thing in here, which is, uh, you know, sometimes I feel like when examining a case or, or this sordid saga of Jeffrey Epstein, that there are elements that are muddying the waters. I don't want to get too conspiratorial, but sometimes I think that when you're dealing with this phenomena of sexual political blackmail, it's almost like conspiracy theories themselves end up becoming the conspiracy, as in there are people peddling garbage and false information to muddy the waters of the actual phenomena and, and helping people to understand it. Uh, I know you're a journalist, so I don't want you to have to get too speculative, but is do you get the sense that that is going on where there is sort of bad faith actors spreading nonsense to try to discredit the case? Well, what I just told you was utter nonsense that I believe either the New York Times or Vanity Fair, I've got to find out which one said that uh, the reason why Wexner gave Epstein access to billions of dollars was because he was lonely. I mean, what do you call that? I mean, it, it, that's either misinformation or disinformation. And I think it might fall under the purview of disinformation. So there's a lot of things like that. But then another telltale is not one media outlet has called for justice for the for the victims. Not not one. What's up with that? I mean, I had the black book for three years before I could get it published. Every major magazine in New York turned me down. So yeah, you were trying to get it published, I think, with or you were talking to people that were at Quaker or The Intercept, right? Or I, I was. Well, it was Gawker that ultimately published the black book, put it up on the Internet. So, yeah, I think that there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation here. OK, thank you again, Nick Bryant. Uh, name your website real quick again. Nick Bryant, NYC.com. But please go to EpsteinJustice.com. There's a couple of things you can do. You can there's a form letter that will be sent to your representatives, federal representatives, centers. There's a um a petition that you can sign and if you want to do more you can leave us uh a email and uh we can incorporate you okay well that does it for this edition of parallax views i hope you enjoyed my conversation with nick bryant and you'll check out the epstein justice website at epsteinjustice.com as always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerilax View to Parallax View with Jerilax View. The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. 
if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.